Welcome to the How the Why. With John Barrett Ingalls. Exploring and celebrating the creative process and the creative purpose of authors, editors, and artists that make up and inspire the Black Hill Press family. Black Hill Press is dedicated to the novella. We believe a great story is never defined by its length. Let's get creative. Hello and welcome to the How, the Why, brought to you by Black Hill Press. My name is John Barrett Ingalls and today it is my great pleasure to have us be connected with Nathan Gebhardt, one of the founders of Road Trip Nation and uh, the creators of roadmaps and uh, uh, inspiring journal travel-based, uh, I don't know, I, I try to create new titles on the fly. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Nathan, well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so stoked to be here, John. And uh, yeah, I, I try to create new titles on the fly too, but it doesn't it it, it doesn't go that well. So I think we share a similar company. Good, 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 good. Um, but I I gotta say, I mean, there you know we we just had a little brief conversation. There was so much more that I wanted to kind of cover in that, but then I was afraid if I did. Uh, we would miss some what I call podcast gold. So right. first off, Road Trip Nation is, uh, I mean, you're going to explain it better, but uh, you take started off with you and a group of friends traveling across country in a green RV, but now it's grown to this huge thing where you go and you interview people who have achieved some level of success, whatever that means to them, to kind of see what their path was. Yep. Uh, that's going to be my truncated version, but do you want to yeah. go into a little more explanation about what Road Trip Nation is? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll kind of, I'll do a truncated version and then you can kind of ask questions and we'll, we'll, we'll figure out where we end up. But sure, sure. The, the, um, I think the short bit of it is it's really kind of less this organization and we really refer to it kind of as a movement. And it's a movement that takes this approach of build a life rather than uh, a resume to kind of creating work life that connects to your interests. So it all kind of originated out of this single question, this like pinpointed freak out moment that myself and my other co-founders had, which was, what am I going to do with my life? And this, this realization that we were living not our own definition of who we were, but somebody else's society, parents, you know. The, you should be this. You should do this kind of mentality. And so, what so, started, so let's go back. I mean, I'm, I, I know you're gonna. We're gonna continue, but I really, I'm really curious about the start. And and the only I I, I want to say this. So 2001 was you finished school. You and your friends yeah. got together, got this uh, RV, painted it green, and went on the road. That same year, I went on the road with a group of friends to make a movie to take this road trip. So it's really kind of, it's awesome. But all this research and learning about it, it's like, wow, there's something that was happening at that time. And I actually have a, a book that's about to come out about that exact road trip. So, um, no way. 
That's awesome. What did you, you, you and your friends, what, what did you, where did you go to school and what did you go to school for? I mean, it was all, it, it started, um, there's three of us that started Road Trip Nation, four of us on the original road trip, and um, that first road trip, we all, the four of us really had this, like, just moment where we realized, like, we we what we thought we were doing had come into question, and so... Um, Mike and I had gone to, geez, we, we met each other in middle school, um, and then I met Brian and Amanda uh, later on in college. Um, but basically, each of us had this kind of observation. So um, Amanda's family, uh, her mom was a teacher. She was wondering whether she wanted to be a teacher or not. Uh, Brian was about to be third generation in a family business of waste management. So he could look at his dad and see what it was going to be like in 20 years and his grandpa to see what it was going to be like in 40 years. Hmm. Um, Mike was a double major biology and kinesiology who in his senior year realized he hated hospitals and this kind of path that like was expected from his family who were largely all doctors was different than his own. And then mine was a little bit um, similar in that that sense, but for for me, I was really always interested in art. Um, I, I probably didn't even know in high school the word design. I just knew like I liked being creative, and I struggled with like what that feeling or what that act of being creative or making things translated into the real world. And so the best I could ever tell my parents what I was going to be was an artist, mm-hmm. and. That, that that broad term, <laughs> right? And, and the reaction, while it was somewhat painful, was probably pretty accurate in the context of an artist like a painter, which was, you're going to be poor, you're going to be homeless, you're going to live under the boardwalk. And I'm sure there's a ton of talented artists who have heard that, but I was a pretty bad like painter. I couldn't my my six year old can do a better drawing of a horse than I can. Um, but I still loved the arts, but I listened to that kind of pressure uh, and that around me, and I just decided to major in business. That was like the practical, like, do the business thing. It's an easy answer to the family barbecue when somebody says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a business major. Oh, great. He's going to be fine. Yeah. And so literally it was like senior year. I'm at a career fair. Um, I'm passing out my resume, and – as a business major, it was like this de facto like assembly line. All business majors, they just become consultants. And somehow I had gotten all the way through the system, assuming I would become a consultant with zero idea of what it was. And so I passed my – as I'm passing my resume out to this guy um, at one of these big like consulting companies, I was like, hey, can I just take you out to lunch and see what you do? Because like, I actually have no idea what I'm applying for. And so two weeks later, we got lunch, and, uh, like, the the focal point of that moment at lunch was I realized that consultants wear suits. And it's, like, (laughs) such a silly, like, sound, insignificant-sounding detail about this, like, life that I had kind of um, thought I was pursuing. But, like, it was the one thing that illustrated to me that that is not who I am. Um, suits for me are funerals and weddings, and that's like the only time I ever get that formal. And so in this silly little conversation and this realization that like I couldn't wear a suit, this whole path that I had kind of imagined for myself just fell away. And 
each of us had that same realization, and that kind of led us to what are we going to do to kind of address this feeling of angst and lust? And our solution was to talk to people who have been successful building lives, uh, building work lives around their interests, and ask them how they did it. Ask them, did they always have it figured out? How did they deal with risk? What was their sense of failure, and how did they define success? All these quite deep and personal questions that like were kind of simplistic in their in their asking, but the answers that came back were incredibly insightful. So we literally put together this concept of doing a three-month cross-country road trip, and we interviewed 85 people all on that uh, topic, anybody from the director of Saturday Night Live to the guy that decoded the human genome to a lobsterman in Maine to the founder of Starbucks to Michael Bell and Sandra Day O'Connor. Now, and, what was it? I mean, that's that's a pretty big undertaking in and of itself. <laughs> Just the trips, the journey, but like yeah. contacting these people, arranging for time. Did you have any connections at all to to any of these people to set up these interviews? Uh, no. Um, and to illustrate a couple examples of that. Um, we booked, I booked, I, I called, um, I watched a commercial, it was for Dell Computers. It had an 800 number to order your Dell. Um, so I just dialed that number and asked for Michael. Um, obviously, he didn't pick up. It was like <laughs> Joe Show salesperson. Um, but like six transfers later, I was talking to his head of PR and that, you know, six transfers telling the story over and over again. Um, Laura Strange ended up just really attaching to the the vision and the simplicity of these kids trying to figure it out. Um, I cold called the Supreme Court from the 1-800 number I found on their website for tours and information. Wow. And I and I asked for Sandra, which was probably not the most respectful thing. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> not even I, Justice O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. I, literally, he 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 was really gracious, and he was like, "You mean Justice O'Connor, right?" And if there's like another Sandra that I could be connecting with, um, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Justice O'Connor." And and uh, I was like, "You know, we're doing this RV and this thing. Any chance we could talk to her?" And he was like, "Ah, uh, yeah, no, absolutely not. But you can write her a letter, or you can come take a tour. That's just I, I can't connect you." And so uh, we ended up uh, doing this dance, him and I, where I would write her, write Sandra a letter. Um, two weeks would go by. I would call him back and say, hey, you know, like she didn't write back. Um, do you think I could talk to her? And he would say, no, but you can write another letter. And so this happened, like, I would say for over the course of, like, three months, we went back and forth. And I literally um, – I was getting so frustrated because this was something that, like, I really wanted to, to do. And it was also something that, like, you think about those moments where you're put in a place where you have no choice. And I felt like this road trip and this moment of trying to book Sandra O'Connor was one of those moments where, like, I had no choice. And in that frustration of him saying no, and, and mind you, the picture here is, like, I'm, we're building this out of our parents' house. So, like, I'm, I'm upstairs, like, cold calling the Supreme Court. My mom's, like, getting dinner ready or something like that. <laughs> and uh, this is thankfully before the days of caller ID. And so after, like, the fifth round of going back and forth with this guy, I was like, 
you know, this is just not working. And so I hung up after the, the deal, and I'm stomping around the hallway. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to try it different. And I called back, and I changed my voice. And I said, sir, I was just speaking with Justice O'Connor, and I am so angry, but I was transferred to you. Please put me back into her chambers immediately. Wow. And uh, he was, like, so apologetic, like a totally, like, uh, I can't believe that happened. Like, hold on one second and just click and transfer me right into Justice O'Connor's chambers. So that was, like, one of the few white lies that um, I'm glad I made. Now, the entire thing you 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 filmed, you recorded, uh, did, did you know that this was going to be a project that you would eventually want to share? Did you, right. did, was there an aha moment in the middle of it of like, oh, this is way bigger than us and, and what we're searching for? Like, this is, this right. is something that we can, you know, give to other people to help other people figure out this, what am I here for feeling? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. Like, if you look at it where it is today, right, where our TV show on public television is we're just in pre-production on season 12, so it's over 100 episodes. Uh, we've given about 1,000 interviews to date. We have um, a curriculum that we uh, work with underserved um, students, which, which I think we've put about 125,000 students through. Is that the, um, the Road Trip Nation experience? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we started a nonprofit to deliver the, the same kind of learnings that we're getting from the television show into the classroom to help students find their passion. And then, you know, we have this new book, Roadmap, coming out. And there's no way we would have engineered that. There's no way we would have said, okay, cool, we're going to do this road trip. We're going to just make a TV show out of it and books and live events. and right. Yep, that's what we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, so like have this giant map back then in yeah. 2001. It's like, this is what it's going to be. Right. Perfect. Here's our uh, our game plan. Yeah, th- there was none of that. Um, but I would say, like, to your point or to your question, probably two weeks into the road trip was, was a definitive perspective shift and I think up until that time we literally were building a project and we called it a project it was just this thing that we were doing after school because we were lost and confused but two weeks into it we realized like these conversations were much deeper and they were much more meaningful than we ever thought and they had like we we were obligated to share those these stories these experiences because I think as a young person, like growing up, you you look up to those people that have been successful. You look up to the director of Saturday Night Live. You look up to the woman who designs Madonna's clothes. You look up to all these individuals, and you say, "Ah, oh, they have got it so figured out. They must right. have known exactly what they wanted to do." And it was, yeah, maybe some hard work, but they just they went out and they had this idea and they did it. And it is crazy how inaccurate that was and so just that sense of like relieving this pressure that like you don't have to all have it figured out straight from the moment and you can have uh, the freedom to kind of explore and fail and evolve was just this huge learning that like no one had ever told us and so it was always it was never like we are going to build road trip to be this the manifestations of what it was wasn't important to us. It was the sharing of the experiences. It was 
how can we give this knowledge, give this shared experience to other people who were lost and confused like we were? So after the first trip, after those 85 interviews and the thousands of miles you drove in that green RV, did you know, well, we got to do this again? Or or what was the what was the thing that said, right, let's try this again? Or, you know, maybe there's more information that we can get, more people that we can interview. Yeah, I mean, I think it it kind of happened again at, like, a, a definitive moment. So when we came back from that road trip, we funded it all on credit card debt, thankfully. Like, our parents didn't, like, freak out, and they let us move back into the house afterwards. Um, in the effort to try and figure out how we were going to share these experiences, like, we had some pretty good, like, just moments of fortune. We had somebody that we interviewed at Nike called us up afterwards and said, hey, I just want to check in on you guys. Is there anything that we can do to help support your 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 project at the time, right? And then at the same time, we had an article run in Forbes magazine. It was like literally like maybe an inch and a half tall. Like it was like a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody read that and thought maybe the story could make a book. And so we kind of put this idea of a book and this we filmed all this stuff, we should learn how to edit, and then we can make a film and share that film. And that the book and Nike coming, came together to basically pay off our debts, make the book, make the film, and then we toured it around the country again. And when the book came out, it was it was amazing, but people, especially in the media, kept like thinking that we were unique. And as many times as I would tell the story about cold calling Senator Dick Hunter or any of this, we we never quite could prove that we weren't special because we really didn't think we were. I mean, like, yeah, it was just we were donkeys putting it together and doing our best, and it just happened to work. Um, but we really thought anybody else could do it. And so kind of just after that book tour and after, you know, being on the Today Show and all of these things, we really felt like, we needed to kind of take that next step, and this, this, what we would kind of go from calling it a project to a movement needed to be bigger than ourselves. And so, the idea was simply to just put other people in the RV to pass the keys to, of the green RV to the next generation. And so, we've literally been doing that since 2003. We've been putting new road trippers behind the wheel every single year, and we've done. Um, countless road trips in the States. We road tripped in Australia, New Zealand, um, all different places. We did a co-production in Israel. Um, but the mission and the ethos and the questions have remained the same. You know, it's, it's that younger generation asking that older generation, how did they figure it out? And you know, the, the element with what we've kind of put this new book together, Roadmap, is, with is like, okay, nearly 15 years on the road, thousand plus stories like what have we learned and so that's kind of like where we're at now is we've taken years and years of other people road tripping and kind of crafted that into i think some insights that we're really excited to share now with 15 years of exploring and and participating in these interviews and watching them and building this this movement there's a few things that I want to, because I, you know, I, I'm, I, I feel like you, you and I are probably roughly the same age, because I, 
graduated college in 2001 and yep. on my own road trip and had my own experience at that time about the, who am I and what am I. And there was a lot that was happening at that time that kind of was like shaking the foundation of what we all once knew or thought about ourselves and in relationship mm-hmm. to our world. Um, but do you think that this, this is something that has always existed, that there's always this, you know, fresh out of school blindness that happens or that this is like a, a symptom of our, our times now? Hmm. You know, I think it's always existed. Um, I think, I think we fill in the gaps on our own, you know, as, as, um, someone who storytells for a living, you can, you can kind of relate to this, but, you know, from a filming standpoint, you know, a a cinematographer will be constantly thinking about what is within the frame and what is outside of the frame. And if you ever edited your own footage, you, it's very difficult to, to remember that the viewers only seen everything inside the frame. They don't remember the smells, the sights, the sounds, right. what happened off camera. And in the same way that like an editor who edits their own footage fills in the blanks, I think every generation probably fills in the blanks. Nobody told me, hey, the CEOs, Michael Dell, those guys all had it figured out. They went on a straight path. I just filled in those blanks for me, for myself. I said, oh, yep, he must have gone to college. You know, Craig Venter, who is the scientist who decoded the human genome, Mike spent his entire college career reading about this amazing scientist, and he filled in the blanks that he must have gone to an Ivy League college, that he must have known exactly that he wanted to get into genomics, and that he just, because he knew it, he went on a straight line and he figured it out. And the first five minutes of sitting down with Craig Venter, we realized he was one grade away from flunking out of high school. He grew up on the East Coast and moved out to the West Coast to learn to surf. He went to the same junior college that Brian and I went to. And he was the guy that if you were at Sears, and you noticed that the tag was on the clothes, like he was the guy at night working at Sears putting tags on clothes so that the customers could buy them the next day, and that allowed him to surf all day. Wow. The only reason he got into science was because he was drafted into Vietnam, and he took a pause and said, if I'm going to go into this, like I want to come out of it with a skill, and somehow he chose right, and he chose medicine and I think three months into Vietnam, he was running one of the largest wards in the entire, um, you know, in, in the island. Hmm. And um, that's not the story that Mike had told himself. You know, he we had filled in the blanks that Craig Venter went on this straight line. And, um, and then the really interesting thing is probably you could argue that because he didn't go on the straight line, he approached medicine and science and genomics in a totally different way, and that's what led to the unique approach that he took to decode the human genome. Another question, and it, you know, I'm I'm asking this for myself because I <laughs> I have nothing figured out. 
And I, I feel like a lot of my peers have nothing figured out. And maybe it's because I live in Los Angeles and maybe it's because I, I have artistic friends, you know, who said, Oh, I want to be an artist and whatever term that meant for them. But, um, you know, looking at, at, uh, public television, it seems like it's this right out of college, um, age, I don't want to call them kids, young adults that are going and exploring this, but your book feels more like, uh, a message to everyone. And I, and I wonder if you think that it, this is a symptom that is of that younger, uh, young adult age, or, or do you notice that it's expanding more towards other people who are like, man, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because this is what my parents told me to do or what right. I thought would be the, the most uh, uh, economically uh, lucrative or you know, whatever the reason is, and then they're at this point, whether it's the midlife crisis or the quarter-life crisis, where they're like, I don't I don't like what I'm doing, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not uh, passionate, and I don't know how to find those things. Right. Is that something that you're you're realizing more through all of this, that, that it isn't necessarily something that happens in your early 20s, but that does expand over time? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, a couple of reactions to that. You feel like you don't have it figured out, and I want to make sure I acknowledge that I don't have it figured out. You know, there is no figuring it out. Right. Um, there is just making the best of the opportunities and staying as true as you possibly can to yourself. I think to kind of answer, like, the first part of your question, you know, in the evolution of road trip, we've had countless people say, like, especially like, so what's your demographic here? Um, and and the interesting thing about road trip is, like, my answer to that is it's not, there isn't a demographic, it's a psychographic. It's really anybody struggling with that question of what am I going to do with my life? And if you look at the TV show, like, especially when we started, we were just freshly out of college, like, there's no reason you'd put a college show on public television, like in terms of like the age demographics. But the beautiful thing about it and the way it works on public television is you've got kind of road trip bringing a younger generation to it, but you've got the older generation there. And I can't tell you how many times initially we were surprised, and now I understand why people in their 50s would write back to us and say, hey, this show connects to so much to me. Or we have parents watching the show with their children and it's it's hitting on both levels, and I think I, I think that's probably like if you look at the book, like essentially what we have done is articulated like this framework or this approach that we have seen consistently across the board individuals take, and it's a circular process. It's not a like here's your five step program, and then when you get to the end of the line, you will found your passion and you'll be cured and you'll never be lost again. Yeah, you'll get this certificate and yeah. you know, life will fall in place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the truth is like people go in these cycles and so like the the approach that we articulate in the book is this concept of let go, define, become. And it's this kind of continual place where you let go of the baggage of society, you let go of that noise from your peers, from your families, your own self-doubt, and you think about who am I truly at the core. The define is defining 
what am I interested in and what matters to me and what are my subjective truths. And then the become is to be that next iteration of yourself. And so if I were to put that in a story and, and to kind of address the like figuring it out thing, David Nealman was the um, CEO and founder of JetBlue. And so same thing, we get, into jet, we get into his office, we think, yep, this guy must have just totally had it figured out. I bet you he just kind of climbed the corporate ladder. And we knew he was a um, vice president at Southwest Airlines before then. So he just assumed Southwest Airlines. He's like, let's do this. I'm going to grow and start a new airline. And five minutes into sitting down with David Nealman, we both real, we learned that he was he's dyslexic and he was fired from Southwest Airlines. Huh. Like nobody puts, hey, I was fired on my LinkedIn profile, and and so again we fill in those gaps that he 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 didn't have that quandary, he didn't have that moment of fear or confusion, and the truth is, he absolutely did. He he was somebody successful as a vice president, and then he had to reinvent. He had to let go of his his definition of self by vice president Southwest Airlines, but he he. He was true to who he was, which is he loved planes and he loved the airline industry and he had a different vision about what he could do with it. And so that then that define and then become was how can I create a new airline? And so JetBlue is the um, manifestation of David Nealman really understanding who he was and, and understanding what success meant to him and understanding what failure really was, which is a learning opportunity. Through all these interviews, you know, I'm sure one thing that I would assume about a lot of people, you know, when I look at success or whatever, I, I assume, well, they probably had a lot of time or they probably had a lot of capital capital to start with. You know, their other parents probably had money. There are these things that you just kind of put in place, like I don't have that time or I don't have the money. Is that something that uh, was a thought and then kind of uh, blown out of the water with these interviews? You mean in the sense of um, when you're the, you're talking to the people like, well, they must have, you know, they must have been able to afford to go to a good school. You know, they right. probably came from a life where they had a little more be better opportunities uh, or, you know, more free time to pursue that thing, to find it instead of having to work, you know, a full-time right. job. These, I, I, I think, you know, these are the, these are some of the excuses that I come up. Well, I have to work a full time job. I don't have the time to, I don't have the money to, you know, to not work and to invest in these things right. that I want to do. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think I would say, like, how people define that next stage has to be decided for them, right? Like, the the truth of the matter is, people that we interviewed chose all different manners to take that next step. And, and for some people, that next step was completely quitting their job. But for others, it was having responsibility or student debt or supporting a family that forced them to take a more incremental approach. So if you mm -hmm. look at like, you know, I can give you a couple examples. You've got Ben Younger who, um, was the writer and director on the Boiler Room. He did Prime, his new film that's coming out soon is produced by Martin Scorsese. He at the time was a young like college graduate and he was uh got into politics. He was the youngest campaign manager in all of New York City. Super successful. 
but one day he decided to volunteer on a film set. Just sounded fun. And it, he just described it as like, that was it. Like, I fell in love with the film set on that, in that moment. And he didn't have a family. He was successful enough that he could take a big leap and he quit. And he literally just jumped into the film world and started at the bottom and worked his way up. But then you've got somebody um, like Adam Steltzner. Adam Steltzner was um, a musician. He didn't have a lot of resources, and uh, he realized that he was driving every night after the end of a show. He would drive across the Bay Bridge, and he realized that the stars moved in the sky. And that's like a pretty like fundamental thing to like not know, but he he really didn't know that the stars moved in the sky. And so he thought, well, yeah, like why don't I go take a class at the community college to learn like astronomy class to learn why the stars move. And so his first step was like, we'll take this class. And then his next step was, well, that was interesting. Can I like finish a degree? And step after step, it was drip after drip after drip until the splash, he's working at JPL, and he was the lead engineer behind the, lion, the landing of the Mars rover. Wow. <laughs> and so you've got, like, this variation. There's people with responsibility who take baby steps, and there's people that take those giant leaps. And, and what is right for the individual has to be decided by the individual. Um, but I think one of the, like, my favorite lines that, like, I've I've heard was this guy um, named Mike Lazo. He said, at the time we interviewed him, he was the uh, vice president of programming at Cartoon Network. And he um, he just said, like, you just have to put yourself in proximity of the things that interest you. And I think no matter how big or small your leaps or baby steps are, taking those opportunities that get you closer and closer to those things that interest you will eventually lead to a place that's true to who you are, aligned with your interest, and supports the skills that you have. Um, I don't want to keep you too long because I know that you have other things to do. I just have a couple more questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, wh why green? Where did the green come from? <laughs> Um, I mean, a couple things, but like, uh, so first there's like the process of elimination. We couldn't go fire red because that's a fire truck and, um, yellow is a school bus. So there was, a, there was a smaller palette to choose from. Hmm. Um, and we kind of just liked green. We settled on the idea of like, let's just do green. And we literally went to the hardware store and, uh, we chose the actual green, which was like a bright neon green, because there was a for sale sign outside uh, the store, and we just said, eh, it's on sale. Let's grab it. <laughs> um, now, we, with Black Hill Press, we started our own project called Routinology uh, earlier this year, where we talked to creatives and, and really everybody about what their routine is. And... Uh, uh, kind of in a similar way to educate, to show that like not everybody has the same routine, but everybody has a routine Yeah. to sit down and, and start their work and, and start their day. Do you mind giving us a little bit of, of your routine uh, when you're at your office, uh, what what your desk looks like, what you need? Are you a caffeine <laughs> person? Um, does there have to be a Cuban cigar on your hand? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> okay. 
Um, well, I would say a couple things. Uh, I have both. I, I span the creative, and I have some OCD like elements in me as well. So, in my job, like now that road trip is bigger than just like the three of us uh, driving around the country and starting this thing. Um, so I do creative direction, which again ties back into that interest in art, and then um, I also oversee all of our legal stuff. So I kind of have those two sides of my brain working in both times, depending on the meeting. Uh, my routine, I'm an early morning person, so I'm usually up at 5, um, and I will catch up on the things I missed the day before from 5 to like 6.30. Uh, I have three young daughters who all wake up at between 5 and 6.30, so generally the uh, the catch-up time will get interrupted, and then we'll usually get outside just to uh, have a little adventure before work. And then um, because I, if you remember before, I'm a pretty shitty, I'm, sorry, I'm not sure if I can cut That's that fine. Oh, um, sweet. I'm a pretty shitty artist, um, an actual <laughs> maker, um, but the creative direction is a place where I, I feel very comfortable in. And so um, the majority of my day, my routine is spent in meetings working with the creative teams. Um, and I will bounce between curriculum to the TV show to an event to uh, the book. Um, and then every once in a while I'll jump into a contract or two. And then I'm pretty religious about kind of integrating the family. Uh, so every day almost without uh, fail, I'm out of here by 5 and uh, get to hang out with the family before the kids go to bed and jump over and do it again. Now, I know we talked about not having um, a outline. I was about to say a roadmap. <laughs> not really having an outline of what road trip nation and, and this movement was going to be. But that being said, do you have kind of a vision of where you would like to see it in like the next 10 years? Or you have the television show, you you have the book that's coming out. Um, how, how do you see it growing? Where do you see it going? Yeah. I mean, I think like we've learned because the road trip is far more an approach and a, and a movement, a mission, um, not to really try to put ourselves into too many boxes. But mm. I would say in the biggest sense, um, we really hope that road trip and, and everything that we've learned um, embeds itself into the way anybody in the world answers that question of what am I going to do with my life? You know, it's it's not like this is just like these three guys just had this opinion and put it in a book. Like this is – you know, probably a couple hundred thousand miles, probably 10,000 hours of conversations and thousands of interviews. And um, we really feel like we've kind of tapped into something that I think addresses the old kind of career exploration crap uh, in a totally fresh way. Um, and And so what it manifests into, whether it's this book, whether it's uh, – TV show in Australia or something like that. It, it's less important what it manifests into. It's more important that we just continue to share these experiences and share these insights. And you know, our vision is very much that Road Trip lives well beyond our lifetimes, and hopefully, um, it just becomes that that place that you go when you're trying to figure out that question, and you can kind of commiserate and get empowered and inspired by other people that have gone before you and figured it out. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, John, thank you very much. I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the dialogue, and uh, I'm just uh, stoked to be on the show. This has been The How, The Why by Black Hill Press. I'm John Barrett Ingalls. The show was produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The music is Mealua by Bossa Zuzu. I wanted to thank everybody for your creativity and your inspiration, and to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.